I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. This is She Said, She Said. My guest today has been an advocate and proponent of helping every child reach his or her potential. Betsy DeVos is the 11th U.S. Secretary of Education, a post she assumed in 2017 after working tirelessly as an advocate for increased school choice and for intervening in schools that weren't performing well. Secretary DeVos, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you, Laura. So delighted to be here with you at the Department of Education. Well, I'm delighted that you're here. (laughs) Let's start with a question that I think trips an awful lot of people up, and that is, what does the Department of Education really do? What are your responsibilities as secretary? Well, the Department of Education is responsible for administering funds only to the tune of about 8% of the entire education spending in the country. So there are programs here. It was established originally to fund, help uh, supplement funds to the target for the most uh, needy and vulnerable students across the country. And uh, the role of the department has continued to creep into areas I would contend that it shouldn't be in. Uh, The states really have the greatest responsibility for education. And so we have been trying to scale back and pull back in areas where the federal government has overreached. That's hard to do. (laughs) Once you have government uh, involved in certain issues, it can be incredibly tricky to dial that back. And the constituencies around them. There There are endless number of alphabet soup entities in this city that all advocate for something to do with education. How is that going? How is the process of working with those various constituency groups going? Well, I think it's going well. Um, We've, again, been very clear that we think the role of the federal government in education needs to be scaled back to its original intention. In fact, there's nowhere in the U.S. Constitution that the word education is mentioned. And it really has been historically a role for the states to uh, direct and uh, to be most involved in. And so what we want to do is make sure that what the U.S. Department of Education is doing does not encroach on the state's role and their opportunity to serve their students in the way that they need to be served. I was shocked to read of the amount of student loan debt that's actually held at the Department of Education. If I'm Mm. not mistaken, it's something around $1.5 trillion in student loan debt. What are your thoughts about that? It's a huge sum of money in total, and it continues to grow. We are very focused on modernizing the framework around federal student aid and uh, bringing it into the 21st century, and at the same time, really supporting multiple pathways for students to pursue beyond 12th grade. Because the reality is that many students take on a bunch of student debt, and they don't complete a program of any sort. 
we need to make sure that students find have the opportunity to find the right pathway for themselves and that they will be supported in doing so. Talk a little bit more, if you could, about the types of things that you're looking at in that regard. Obviously, college is wonderful, but it's not right for everyone. So what are some of the innovative things that you're seeing that might be better fits for some students? Well, we know today that there are over 7 million jobs that are open across the country, many of which don't require a four-year college degree. And yet there's a mismatch in uh, the suggestion that we give either, either overtly or covertly through high school is that you have to go to college, you have to go to college. Well, this administration is really intent on opening up those different opportunities and exposing students earlier on while they're in middle school and early high school to perhaps apprenticeship opportunities to earn while they're learning and to, uh, to other career and vocational opportunities that are really great paying jobs perhaps that a student would pursue for a period of years and then decide to go back and get formal education for something else. But we have to, we have to really be uh, a lot more open to supporting all of these different career opportunities and getting past the idea that many parents have that four-year college or university is the only pathway to go. Sure, sure. It requires a lot of innovation that, you know, frankly, we haven't seen as much of in the area of education, it feels like, right? That's right. Um, there have been giant silos that have built up over the years between, you know, pre-K, K-12, uh, career and technical education, community colleges, tr traditional four-year college and university, and frankly, between education and educators and employers. And there's a real opportunity for the business world to get much more involved in with educators in designing options and opportunities for the future based on their needs today and their their you know their knowledge of what they're going to need uh, several years from now. Mm -hmm. That brings us to I think one of the areas um, you've made some great progress at tackling a number of different challenges, including that very one, and that sounds like it falls into the category of what's called Education Freedom Scholarships. Well, Education Freedom Scholarships is a proposal to help kids get better educations mm -hmm. at, at its core. What it would do is establish a federal tax credit amount individuals and corporations could contribute annually to this tax credit fund states could decide whether to participate. If they did, they could create programs that will give students and parents more choices on how and where they would get their education. So for example, uh, Florida, I often cite Florida, one of the states that's farthest along with giving students choices in K-12 education. They could supplement programs that they already have there, or they could create a new program to um, create you know, career and technical education centers and uh, provide scholarships for students to attend those, or apprenticeship opportunities. The, the sky is really the limit as to how states could use those tax credit funds to develop many more choices to really fit the needs of students unique to that state. And is that is this a proposal or is this it something is. okay, so it, it has is. not been approved? No, it's been introduced in both the House and the Senate. Uh, it's currently gaining more and more support. 
And uh, the president would definitely sign it if it reaches his desk. Uh, and, and we think that this is an important way to help jumpstart education choice, education freedom across the country. There have been many states that have sort of been on the edge of offering more opportunities but have pulled back. There have been others that have small programs. This would allow states to really be able to offer a host of new opportunities and to think very creatively about how to do it because it doesn't take anything away from their current system, their current setup, their current scenario. Teacher shortage is a big concern for an awful lot of people, I'm sure yourself included, and having a robust economy oftentimes uh, hurts us as it relates to teachers because of the low pay. How are you thinking about this notion of teacher shortage, and what can the department do to try to offset that? Well, we've been trying to find ways to acknowledge really great teachers and support and elevate teaching as a profession. I've listened to hundreds of teachers across the country. Many of them tell me that they're frustrated by the lack of ability to um, further their own professional development, that they're assigned to go to programs that are irrelevant for their needs. And so we've put forward a proposal to establish what we're calling teacher vouchers for them to pursue their own professional development in ways that will really enhance their uh, ability to teach and be even better in the classroom. And we think that by doing some things that really will support them and uh, give them more autonomy and recognize them as the professionals they are, number one, more of them will stay in the classroom if they do have an opportunity to teach others and instead of going into administration uh, and number two it will give them a lot more uh, again flexibility and autonomy around the things that they do best. You have been accused of trying to eliminate public schools. Is this true? Where does this criticism come from? Well, I don't know exactly where that comes from, other than there's a lot of opposition to me and, and what I've stood for in general. Nothing could be further from the truth. I support public schools. I support great public schools. I feel like every school needs to be getting better every day, every year, on behalf of the, the students they're serving. My focus is to continue to urge and encourage them to do things differently. I think there's a giant resistance to change. Just in general, change is hard. I acknowledge that. But change we must, particularly when we consider how we rank as compared to the rest of the world. So we are 24th in reading, 25th in science, and 40th in math when compared to other countries around the world. Now, we would never be satisfied if those were our standings in an Olympics. Why is it okay when it comes to education? Why is it okay when it comes to education? Well, it's not okay. And that's why I've continued to urge and push uh, that schools have to get better. And if they aren't willing to change and they aren't willing to make adjustments, and for students who are assigned to a school that isn't working for them, they need to have an alternative. They need to have the freedom to go elsewhere. Those who have economic means can make those choices. Those who don't have been stuck far too often. And that's why I have advocated for more than three decades 
to give parents and students that kind of power to make those decisions. And that really is, it sounds like, your driving philosophy behind education. Absolutely. I I believe in the potential of every single child, and we need every single child's potential to be fully developed. We need that for the future of this country. Let me ask you about something. I believe this is still a proposed rule, but it has generated a good bit of controversy, but also support from places that you might not necessarily expect. And that is the revised regulations through Title IX pertaining to assault on campus and how Mm -hmm. it's handled by colleges and universities. Can you describe what the proposal is, recognizing that you are in the proposal phase? So I, I understand that you're getting public comment on this from both sides, but maybe describe the direction that the department has proposed. Well, I listened to many individuals on this issue, uh, survivors for whom the system, the framework didn't work, those who were falsely accused for the two uh, individuals from institutions that had to adjudicate these things, all of whom said the former framework, the guidance put forward in the last administration, simply did not work. We need to have a framework and a process that schools can rely on, that they know what has to happen and what their responsibilities are, and most importantly, that students can rely on. That's fair to everyone. And so our proposal has, uh, our draft rule has gone through the public comment period. We're now reading and responding to those comments and, uh, and we'll soon have a final rule to uh, release that will fulfill these goals to make sure that um, all students are treated fairly and uh, with consistency and reliably. And some sense of due process, presumably. Right? Absolutely. And that's, uh, that's part of, uh, part of fairness. And, um, you know, again, acknowledging that one sexual assault is one too many and one falsely accused student is one too many. So we, we, uh, we, we need to do better, and we are, we're going to do better. We hear a lot about this notion of free speech on campus and how it is under assault. And I was fortunate to have Middlebury College political science professor Allison Stanger, who, as you may mm. recall, hosted Charles Murray, noted conservative author, um, and was attacked. she was physically attacked. Yeah. We had her on the podcast. She told her story in graphic detail. It was fairly disturbing, frankly, mm-hmm. what happened to her. It's also important to note that she's not a conservative. And despite that fact, she wanted to have, you know, diversity of thought. A free exchange opinion, of ideas. A free exchange of ideas. And she was beaten up. Yeah. What can the department do to encourage a greater tolerance for diversity of thought and opinion? We talk about diversity on all different fronts, but when it comes to thought and opinion, it seems like there's a wall that comes up. What are your thoughts on that? Well, this is a really important issue for everyone to pay a lot of attention to. Um, The president has signed an executive order really calling for free speech to be re-embraced again. And I have spoken regularly about the necessity for campuses to be places of open exchange of of ideas. Um, I think the most important things we can do is just 
raise the uh, raise the level of attention around this or uh, focus on it, and continue to point to examples that are simply not to be tolerated. We must have the open exchange of ideas on every campus. And when we hear of examples, we're going to raise them up. And when we hear of places that are actually doing this well, I think about the University of Chicago that has put forward the Chicago principles. Um, other institutions have begun to adopt it. It's not a policy, it's not a mandate, but it's a framework under which they expect everyone on their campus is going to operate. And these are, you know, these are important steps. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I myself have been the victim of what we refer to as the heckler's veto. It's just, it's not, it's not doing service to anyone, no matter what their perspective is. We have to, we have to allow students to have the, you know, ideas that they don't necessarily agree with um, presented, and they need to be in a position to debate those and discuss those ideas. You are taking on some really challenging issues. There's a lot, you know, there's a lot of criticism, right? Anytime anyone is doing anything in Washington, of course, you get lots of criticism. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with the criticism, which, which can at times, I think, be very vicious? Mm -hmm. I, I just stay focused on what the mission is, and it, it really is to help students get a better education. And most of it I can really sort of dismiss, and it doesn't. I don't take it personally. I think the things that do hurt are, are when you are very misunderstood or when um, something is misinterpreted or intentionally twisted to make it sound different than what it is. Those, you know, those are frustrating because it, it's uh, next to impossible to correct some of those things without uh, spending an inordinate amount of energy and time trying to do so. But I, for the most part, I, I just stay focused on what we're trying to do on behalf of students. Yeah. Were you surprised by the level of criticism? I wasn't. I was involved in a lot of partisan politics in Michigan for many years, and so I was, I was used to the the rough and tumble of politics, but I, I have to say it, it's, you know, the, when the cameras go on or when, uh, you know, the smartphones come out to tape their YouTube moment, it's, uh, it, it is frustrating because it, it's not, it doesn't accomplish anything. Let's talk about how you got here. You, you talked about your work in Republican politics in Michigan, but what is it about education that inspired you? And w when was that moment that you mm. said, this is really where I want to focus my, my life? Well, it was really an iterative process. When my oldest son, Rick, who's now 37, was starting kindergarten, you know, Dick and I knew we were going to be able to have our children go wherever we wanted them to go for their K-12 education. And I happened to get involved as a volunteer at a small faith-based school in the heart of our city. And the more I got involved there, the more I saw that the students there, they loved being there. And for every family that was able to have their children there, there were probably 10 or 20 other families that couldn't because of, it, it was a tuition-based school. They couldn't afford it. And uh, the school couldn't afford to take them in. So I got more and more in, involved there, and um, I just kept seeing the injustice of this policy that would preclude families from making that choice. 
because they couldn't financially afford it. And so I started to advocate advocate for policy changes. Dick and I started a foundation in Michigan to help students financially. Both of us got involved in many different ways, first primarily in Michigan, but then uh, I started being involved with a national organization and then leading one that really got involved in the political part of it to, to make policy change, understanding that without the politics, the policies weren't going to change. You have four grown children, you have grandchildren. What do they all think about your having taken this job? Well, there are probably mixed reviews among them, but I, I'm, again, grateful for their support and um, their encouragement of me. Um, I miss not seeing them and my grandchildren nearly as much as I would be if not for this job. I, I celebrate the fact that they are all very different in their skills and gifts and interests and they are um, really good examples of the fact that every kid is different. I mean, they come from the same parents and yet they are all completely different. I think that acknowledging that reality for all kids is is what we need to do rather than try to impose a one-size-fits-all approach. You mentioned your partner in life, Dick DeVos, who's an amazing and charming fellow I've been privileged to, to meet. You've been married to him this year for 40 years, as That's I understand correct. it, which is amazing. It is. What is your secret to a long-lasting marriage? Both of us took pretty seriously the verse from the Bible that says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. We both had to learn over the years how to better communicate with one another. We're both firstborns, so we both like to call the shots. And that has taken a lot of navigating over the years. But it's, uh, it's been a wonderful 40 years, and I couldn't be more privileged to be married to him. How has he adjusted to this role that you've taken on? Because this has got to be uh, fairly disruptive for, the, for, for your life. Very, very. <laughs> and he has been amazingly supportive. And um, I mean, I, it's just a, a real testimony to our relationship that uh, for many years, the role was kind of reversed. And he was one of the first to acknowledge that this was a change for him. and. And he's, he's just been amazingly supportive, and I'm very grateful for his, uh, his willingness to, to support me in this opportunity and to do so in a way that makes it very easy on the personal side for me. You have done well as a family financially, and that wealth has been the source of criticism. Can you talk about um, your views as it relates to that? Well, our family has been very blessed financially. Um, I would also say we've worked hard over the years. Um, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. Dick grew up in an entrepreneurial family. We both knew, uh, grow, grew up learning the value of hard work. And we, we also grew up with parents who modeled the notion that when you have a lot, you are, a lot is expected of you. And so we have, uh, you know, we've learned to give generously, both financially and of our time and talent. And that is, you know, 
that is something that I think uh, we should be embracing for everyone to aspire to being able to pursue whatever their interests are and and uh, and, and then be really positive and constructive parts of a, the community in which you live and that we, you know West Michigan is a, a pretty unique area and I think we both feel very fortunate to have grown up in that environment where you know people celebrated other people's success and kept cheering them on and then those who have been successful have been for the most part very generous and involved in that community continuing to help make it better and i think that's you know frankly what's missing in a lot of communities across the country today and something that we have we we should aspire to uh, seeing come back and uh, encouraging people to help make that happen yeah. on the local level. It really is the definition of the American dream. You know, it's what you aspire to and you've been successful. The idea that you would be criticized for that seems very strange to me. It, it, it seems strange to me as well, but <laughs> there have been lots of things that have seemed strange to me over the years. <laughs> <laughs> what is the toughest part of this job? I think often the pace at which things can actually happen. There's nothing in a federal agency that happens quickly. And that has been frustrating coming from the private sector. It's, it is a different experience and a different pace. And there are some things that I say, well, this just has to be changed and we're going to change it. And then when you actually get into it and realize what it would take to change it, you decide that that's probably not the highest thing on the priority list. And so you turn your attention to the things that are higher. And, and frankly, that's, I think, that is an issue federal government agencies wide that, um, that's not ultimately good for the American taxpayer. What about the best part of the job? The best part of the job, I would say, is the chance to meet kids across the country and uh, teachers across the country and just see different kinds of school environments, education environments, and know that there is not one size fits all. And the ability to continue to talk about that and urge people to embrace that and do their thing and do it well on behalf of kids is great. How much time do you spend actually going out into communities and visiting schools and academics and others? Well, it ebbs and flows. So the last few months I haven't because of what we talked about earlier, right. um, being a little bit uh, impaired to be able to do so. But the next few months I'm, I'm going to be uh, out and about a lot more and looking forward to that. Yeah, the secretary is referencing an injury that she had a bicycle crash in which she shattered her pelvis and that was in December. It is now April as we're recording this and you are walking. You have no walker, no cane, no wheelchair. That in and of itself is amazing. Um, What do you attribute that to? Well, I'm thankful to have had pretty rapid healing and I, I think being in relatively good shape definitely helped me get back on top of things again. I wouldn't say I'm 100%, but I'm pretty close. Will you be biking, able to bike? Yes, I might I might approach my biking slightly differently. Uh-huh. Um, I don't want to repeat this injury. It was <laughs> not fun. How do you deal with uh, 
taking risks or jumping into something that may be a little, may make you a little nervous. What sort of tools do you use to help get you over the the hump? I think uh, to stay focused on taking it one step at a time instead of envisioning what the most difficult piece of it might be or thinking too far ahead. Um, Just taking it a step at a time and, and dealing with it accordingly. Do you want to talk at all about your faith? What role faith plays for you? I'd be happy to. It's it's really core to who I am, and it informs everything that I do. And I'm thankful to have had a lot of really great mentors in my faith when I was younger. And that was one of the things, you know, when I my children were younger, and and now as uh, you know, in, at this age, having other women that we could discuss not only faith matters, but kind of holding each other accountable to things that we've you know committed to doing whether it's a you know personal family issue or professional issue that that has been very valuable how do you think about mentorship now that you are further along in your career do you still have mentors i do i think that uh, that's probably one of the things that i'm i, I would welcome more of at this point and I, I really have appreciated those that have been uh, Im- important mentors to me in the past. And I think, I think mentorship in general is, uh, is undervalued broadly and um, really much more important than we give it credit for. Yeah. Uh, a lot of our listeners are younger women who are just launching their careers. And I get a lot of questions about mentorship and what's the most effective. What advice do you give to young people, maybe in your office, who are seeking that mentor-mentee relationship? I would encourage those seeking mentorship to not be afraid to ask, because I think those who have a lot of good advice to give don't necessarily, wouldn't necessarily reach out if they're not asked. Yeah, that's great advice. Understanding that all political appointments have a sunset, right? We don't always know exactly when that's going to be. But when you think about legacy, what do you hope yours will be? Either in this job or, or frankly, more broadly as it relates to your whole career focused on education. That I was a part of bringing education freedom to the kids that need it most. We ask every person on the podcast for a single piece of advice, a life hack, or a mantra, something that's maybe your North Star. What is yours? Say yes to things that you're not sure you can do. Stretch yourself. Take risks. Yeah, say yes. Yeah, that's great. That's terrific. Secretary DeVos, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It was a pleasure. To learn more about Secretary DeVos, you can visit our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. Now you can also listen to us on iHeartMedia and on PodCoin, where you can earn money just for listening, money to use toward purchases, and your favorite charity. As always, thanks so much for listening and for being part of our growing, inspiring group of women at She Said, She Said. She Said.